Our pastor's been preaching a series on the keys to revival in America, and we're going to continue in that this morning. Why do we need revival? There's so many reasons, but I believe one of the biggest reasons is because God is judge of this universe, and God is judge of our lives. And we're going to talk about the judgments of God this morning, because God is a perfect judge, Scripture says. He's not only creator, he's not only savior, he's not only provider, but he is judge. Psalm 7 says, the Lord judges the people's. He sa- it says, God is a righteous judge. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Psalm 9 says, the Lord abides forever. He's established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. It says, let the nations be judged before you. Let the nations know that they are but men. The scriptures communicate that God's judgment is in this life and also in the life to come. We know that we will stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account of how we're going to live our lives, but God is constantly judging us. He's constantly watching you, testing you. The eyes of the Lord go back and forth across the earth. Psalm says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Galatians 6 says that we don't need to be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever we sow, we will also reap. We're reaping right now seeds that we sowed in the past. All across this room, our obedience in the past is reaping blessings and benefits in our lives right now. Faithfulness to your spouse, truthfulness with your coworkers, love and kindness towards others, forgiveness to those who hurt you, sharing the gospel with those who were lost and them coming to Christ. You are enjoying and experience the, the judgment, the rewards of God right now in your life from your past. But also all of us in this room are suffering the consequences right now of the sins that we've committed in the past. Guilt, broken trust, hardness of heart, ignorance because we've neglected the word, people around us who haven't come to know the Lord because we haven't shared with them. Our children reap the consequences of our disobedience to God. God judges in this life. Scripture communicates that clearly, but also in the life to come. Our actions have immediate consequences and eternal ones as well. He tests us every day. His eyes are going back and forth, strongly supporting those who are fully committed to him. He sees and exposes our sin in this life. He's disciplining his children right now. But yet, all of the present judgment that you and I are going through in this life is preparing us, is trying to help us to get right with God for the greater judgment when we will stand before him. And even in his harshness, even in his discipline of you right now, it is his mercy that he allows that into your life so that you will get right with him, so that you and I will repent now of our sins, so that we can stand before him blameless, unashamed. God's judgment brings great punishment to sins. 
and great rewards on righteousness. Deuteronomy 28 talks about the blessings of God on his covenant people Israel. And the blessings go on and on and on. If you read that passage, just all of the blessings with your family, with your storehouse, in the city, in the field, with your children, the protection of God, it just goes on and on. And then the last half talks about God's judgment and discipline because of disobedience. Now we can say, well, that that was God's covenant people over them, but we see that now in our lives. There are great rewards from following God right now. There are great benefits from following Christ. It may not be material. It may be just the joy of the Lord in your heart, which is priceless. It may be the love and the joy and the peace of Christ that your happiness and joy are found in him and not in your circumstances. It may be the fact that he's helping you endure a tough circumstance right now. But I want you to think about this. It's not just that if I obey God, there's a $10 benefit, and if I disobey God, there's a $10 loss. No, there are great benefits, and there are great consequences from obeying and disobeying the Lord. Imagine it as a $10 million benefit or a $10 million loss, and way, way more than that. The punishment for sinning against God is great. The wages of sin is death. Think about Adam and Eve. Just one sin on one day and the, con- the, the awful consequences. We think the consequences were so great. Think about David and Bathsheba. Their sin, their immorality, which they thought may not hurt anyone else. And yet, the loss of that child, the death of Uriah, 20,000 men died in battle because of Absalom's rebellion, because of David's sin. The consequences were awful. Think about Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament church and God striking them dead. And we think, well, that's harsh. But also think about the rewards of people who obeyed God in Scripture. Great is your reward in heaven is often used in the New Testament if you'll obey the Lord. Incredible, overwhelming, undeserved rewards from obeying God, from repenting. Think about Abraham, the the blessings he received because he just launched out and trusted God. And he's one of the most famous men, the father of Judaism. Muslims look back at Abraham. Christians look back at Abraham. We know that the the, the faith that God gave us in the Bible, beginning with the example of Abraham, worldwide fame, trusting God. Or David, trusting God on that day and slaying Goliath. The prodigal son, think about the benefits of him making the decision to humble himself and go home. And the rewards. His older brother was overwhelmed by the rewards. He doesn't deserve that. I want you to know the rewards of following God are great in this life and in the life to come. Why? Why are the consequences so great and why are the rewards so great? Because we're dealing with God. We're dealing with a holy God. Everything exponentially changes when God gets involved. There is so much more at stake when God gets involved. I remember going through an airport earlier this year, and I saw this sign right out when I got off the plane, and I took a picture of it with my phone. I don't think anybody else has ever taken a picture of this sign, and it says, these are the consequences for assaulting a police officer. That's what the sign said. That intrigued me because I've been thinking about this for a while. It said on there, Assaulting an officer of the United States is a punishable 
punishable offense. You shall be fined, imprisoned, or broke, or both. If you injure them in the line of duty, you will receive additional fines and imprisonment. And I thought because of their status, the consequences are greater. And we think, what about when we're dealing with God, though? What about when our sin is against God? What about when our rebellion is against God? The consequences are exponentially, unbelievably greater. The rewards are greater, and yet the consequences are greater when we're dealing with God. Because he's a just God. And if he does nothing, he's not just. He's not good if he just does nothing in response to our lives. We thumb our nose at him and he does nothing. We sin against him and he does nothing. He would not be a just, good, holy, righteous God. And yet scripture says he is. When we see a child in rebellion and we see the parents do nothing, we think, well, that's not a good parent. And yet when we as his children rebel, if God does nothing, is he really being a good parent? Well, scripture says he's on it. He may delay his wrath, he may delay his judgment, but it's coming. So, when I've been reading through Scripture this week, uh, many things have opened up to me that I want to share with you. One of them is God judges us at different levels and in different ways. And let me share with you the first way he judges us. He judges us as individuals for our sins. Look at this in Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You take your right hand and put it on your right knee. <clears throat> the knee you hold in your hand will bow before God one day. And you will confess Jesus as Lord. You can do that now and surrender yourself to him now and enjoy the rewards and the benefits of knowing God now, of submitting to him now. Or you can resist him. You can resist his word. You can harden your heart. You can ignore what he's told you to do and be calloused and suffer the consequences later. But he is why you're here. He's why your heart is beating He's why there's oxygen in front of your nose and mouth 24-7. For him, we live unto the Lord. And God will judge us as individuals. The Bible says that he'll judge our secrets in Romans 2. It says in 1 Corinthians, he will bring to light the hidden things that are in darkness, disclosing the motives of our hearts. Matthew 12 says he'll judge the words of our mouths. Romans 2 says he tests the deeds we have done. The judgment seat of Christ is not a theory designed to motivate us. It is a reality established by God, confirmed and wired into your conscience, because your conscience either accuses or excuses the decisions that you make. And the Bible says when you stand before God, your conscience will accuse you 
or excuse you before him. God also judges us as families. It says in Jeremiah 10, pour out your wrath on the nations and on the families that do not call your name. Noah's family was delivered because of his faith. Lot's family was delivered. Achan's family, though, was disciplined. The whole family suffered the consequences of his sin. Ananias and Sapphira, they were killed for their sin. Your obedience to God will affect your family right now and your children and your great-great-grandchildren. Or your disobedience to God will affect your family right now and your children and your great-great-grandchildren. Thirdly, God judges us as a church. As churches, he judges us. Think about the book of Revelation. Begins with two chapters in chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Jesus is walking through his judgment on churches. That when we meet together, we commit sins as a church, or we obey God as a church. Revelation describes God's judgment and warns them. The Apostle Paul was writing his epistles to different churches, teaching them, warning them, trying to help them to obey the Lord. And churches experience the rewards of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. Our pastor has stood in this pulpit multiple times and warned us about not neglecting the Lord, about not turning away from the Lord, about not slacking off in our walk with the Lord, about pressing in even further, because he feels the burden on his shoulders every Sunday when he stands in this pulpit, that he's accountable for this church. And when you and I live in sin, we come to church as a hindrance to revival rather than a catalyst of revival. When we gossip, we're becoming a hindrance to revival and to unity. When we complain, when we have immorality unconfessed in our hearts, we come to church hindering this church's spiritual life rather than being a catalyst, a vibrance, a force for good in this church's life. And then how are we being in our community? Because when Jesus judged those churches and warned them of what's to come, he says, I'll take away your lampstand right now. I'm going to shut you down in your community. Or there's going to be great rewards. I'll give you the crown of life. I'll do great things when you stand before me in heaven if you walk in obedience. One of the churches, he warned them. He said, you're doing a good job, but you're tolerating the sin in your community. You're doing nothing about it. And when I think about us, I think, are we neglecting the poor in our community? Are we neglecting the orphans, the widows in our community? Or are we just enjoying what God has given us? Are we being salt and light in our community? Is our community hearing the gospel because this church is here? Because we're going to be judged for that. And then God judges us as a city. Matthew eleven, twenty-one through 24. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? There were cities. God's judgment fell on them. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Woe to you. And he began to speak to the names of different cities. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, two other cities, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago and sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. He's speaking to cities that God was going to judge those cities. And now when you visit Israel, so many of those cities are gone. There's nothing there anymore because God judged them. He would send prophets into cities 
to warn the cities. And God wants you and I to not contribute to the sinfulness of Albany, Georgia, and Leesburg, and this region, but to contribute to the righteousness that, these, that our city would be a city dedicated to God and honoring the Lord. And we're salt and light helping our city do the right thing. And then Psalm 9 says God, God judges us as a nation. He has, he will judge us as a nation. Psalm 9 says, arise, O Lord, let the nations be judged before you. Let the nations know that they are but men. Psalm 79 says, pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you. Psalm 33 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So when we think about our nation and we think about our city and we think about our church and we think about our family and we think about ourselves individually, we need to realize there are consequences for our decisions. There are rewards for our obedience. And when you and I think that our individual sin is affecting no one but ourselves, we are deceived. Because not only if I'm just living in private sin, is it affecting my life, but it's hurting my family, and it's hurting my church, and it's hurting my city, and I'm not doing what God has called me to do in this nation because I'm self-absorbed. I believe that our generation in America, we've got our Americanized Christianity, and we are intoxicated by our abundance. We're intoxicated by entertainment. We're too busy indulging ourselves to reach out to those who are in need around us, to share the gospel with those who are in need around us, to meet the needs of those who are in need around us. We default, and I'm very guilty of this as much as anybody else, we default back to our routine of self-indulgence. And we say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sinning, I'm not getting drunk at my home, and I'm not, yes, but our entertainment is our intoxication. We're constantly defaulting back to just thinking about ourselves. And this week I was warned when I saw in Scripture that Sodom and Gomorrah's sinfulness began with their abundance. Scripture says they had an abundance of food, they had an abundance of things, and the poor were all around them and they were doing nothing. And that began their digression into depravity. So we can say, well, I'm not like Sodom and Gomorrah, but yes, sir, are, are you and I on a path to that? Are we neglecting to reach out to those who are around us? How does God judge nations? How does God judge peoples? Well, first, he judges us externally. If you read Deuteronomy 28, you see he's, some of the consequences that he lays out, some of them are wars and casualties of war. Do we know anything about that? As a nation, absolutely. That's one of the consequences of God's judgment in this life for our sin. One are major economic problems and joblessness. Have we heard anything about that? One of them is indebtedness to foreign countries, is a judgment of God on a nation. Do we know anything about that? Absolutely. Chronic disease and health issues, it says in Deuteronomy 28. Drought and poverty, slavery, 
We say, well, no, we don't have slavery. Yeah, have you heard anything about the sex slavery that's going on in America right now? Marriage and family problems are part of the judgment of God. He turns us over to what we're pursuing. It says in Ezekiel, he allows fire in your land to destroy your land, burn up your crops. You know anything about fires in the land? Ask the people in Colorado. Amos talks about floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, and storms. You say, well, no, you know, God wouldn't do that. Those are just natural disasters. Oh, really? The scripture over and over again walks through that God is sovereign over the weather. Did you know that? Nothing happens without the foreknowledge of God. Jesus said if a a small sparrow falls to the ground, God's fully aware of it. He knows the numbers of hair on your head right now. And some of you don't have that many. (laughs) And he's fully aware of it. I'm joining you slowly every day. But the flood of Noah was a weather judgment of God. Fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when Jonah ran from God, God sent the weather storm. They were like, why is this storm here? And Jonah said, me, I'm in sin. They threw him off to the side and then the storm subsided. God sent the wind to push back the Red Sea. Israel comes through and then God judged the Egyptians with weather. Mark 4, when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, they were astounded that the wind and the waves obeyed him. Look at this verse, Psalm 83, up on the screen. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Look at this one, Jeremiah 51. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against Babylon a destroying wind. And when hurricanes hit our land, we think, well, that's just random. God's asleep at the wheel. And God says, no, I'm the one sending that. I'm, I'm in control. We don't, we don't like that. We, you know, when, when somebody goes on television and says, well, this, this hurricane is part of the judgment of God, we mock that person. We think, oh, how insensitive. God would never do that. Oh, really? He is a sovereign, holy God. He also judges internally. If you read Romans 1, there's the progress of depravity where they didn't honor God anymore. And so he turns them over internally to the futility of their mind, foolishness. He allows their hearts to be darkened. If they don't repent, seek the Lord, he turns them over to self-centeredness and self-indulgence. He turns us over to that. If we don't repent, he turns us over to lust and sexual impurity and idolatry. Or a nation, he turns them over to that. If we don't repent, he turns us over to degrading passions, homosexuality. He turns us over to deep depravity, wickedness, hatred towards God. We begin to celebrate and defend the things we should be ashamed of. That's going on in America right now. So internally, God is judging us right now as a nation. But in the midst of all this, Scripture communicates that God also judges with mercy. You think, well, what what does that mean? The Bible says he's abounding in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. So here's some of the ways that God judges us in mercy, that even in his demonstrations of judgment, he is showing us mercy. First, Romans 1 says he holds back his wrath when we sin. 
He doesn't immediately squash us like he could. Secondly, he convicts us in our consciences. His Holy Spirit was sent to convict us of sin and righteousness and of his judgment. And then he'll send warnings to us, a shot over the bow. He'll use his word. He'll use his church. He'll use our culture. He uses weather. He uses our economy. He uses attacks from other nations, the Bible communicates, that he can use. Everything is at God's disposal, by the way. Nothing is off limits. He can use anything to try to wake us up. Well, we don't like warnings. It's like uh, if your fire alarm in your house went off in the middle of the night, it would be obnoxious. You wouldn't like that. I want to keep sleeping. But yet it's there to warn you there's a fire. (laughs) And the fire of God's judgment, the fire of God's holiness, he'll send us warnings. Sometimes our pastor will stand up in this pulpit and with a broken heart, he will warn us as a church. He will plead with us to not harden our hearts against the Lord. And if we're not careful, we can begin to judge our pastor. Say, well, does he have his act together as if we're his judge? Man, he sounded kind of harsh when he said that. I, don't, I think he could have said that in a more gentler way I would have. I, I, I don't like that fire alarm. It needs to be in a pleasant-sounding tone as I lay here in bed. And we realize that sometimes it takes a two-by-four up the side of the head before we shape up and start doing something about our sin. I mean, in Scripture, God sometimes will make prophets very angry, and they'll go in, and they will sound horrific to the people because they're harsh. But God knows if it's not harsh like that, if it's too gentle, you won't respond. You won't repent. You'll just harden your heart more, and you'll ignore it. You'll think, well, you know, I'll think about that. So God warns us in his mercy. And then he lovingly reproves us to repent. Revelation 3 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And then he he patiently gives us opportunities to repent. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Today is the mercy of God on you. If you have not repented of your sin, today is the mercy of God that he's given you another opportunity to turn to him. The other thing he does is he judges in stages. If you look in Scripture, he'll he'll judge a little bit as a wake-up call, and then he'll give them an opportunity. If they don't repent, he'll judge more harshly as another wake-up call. If they don't repent, he'll judge more harshly. I mean, he could just wipe us out if he wanted to. He could let there be severe, harsh judgment. But yet, it's his mercy again that causes us to have another opportunity. You see that in Scripture. I want to show you something. Turn left and go to the book of Amos. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Go to Amos chapter 4. 
Now, as we look at this, I want you to notice two things. One, I want you to see how God uses various things to try to wake up Israel and call them to repentance, that he's judging them in different ways. And then secondly, how he keeps trying to give them another opportunity to repent and how they respond. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4 of Amos. He says, but I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. So famine. He brings famine on them as judgment, hopefully, but it says, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So furthermore, I withheld the rain. So there's drought. While there were still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain, and one part would be rained on while the other part was dry. So two or three cities would stagger to one another to drink water but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. So wind is using the weather again. And the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olives. So the crop failure... Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So I sent a plague among you after the many manner of Egypt. I slew your young men with the sword. So he allows wars to be a part of that. Along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from the blaze. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Again, mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And yet we get angry at his judgments. I don't like the fire alarm, God. Shut it down. And he says, but there's a fire coming. And a just God must be just. God judges perfectly and precisely, Scripture communicates. Psalm 75 says, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. Now think about this. Remember the 12 spies? They went into the land of Israel. They came back and 10 of them said no. They didn't trust God. Two of them said yes. After 40 years... Who was wiped out and who remained? The ten that didn't trust God died, and the two that trusted him remained. Was that coincidence? No. God's judgment is very perfect and precise. Rahab trusted God. She's the only one spared in the city. Why? Because God's judgment is precise. It's accurate. I want you to think about the United States of America and our relationship with Israel. If you look in Scripture, God was very precise in how he judged Israel, his covenant people. And they were given Sabbath days, but they were also given Sabbath years. And at the end of seven years, he would say, don't plant any new crops, let the land rest. This is a Sabbath year, take it off. But they ignored that. And every seven years, they just continued to ignore that. So in 2 Chronicles 36, it says, by the word of the Lord, he exiled them and carried them away to Babylon. And he said he did this to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. He was very precise at how long they were exiled so that they would be punished according to what they had withheld from him. In Isaiah 43, God promised he would, when the nation was spread out, 
that Israel would one day come back together as a nation. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is born, and he says it's going to happen. He's going to bring them from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And in 1948, guess what happened? From the north, the south, the east, and the west, Israel is resurrected as a nation, fulfilling the promise of God. And the Lord had told Abraham, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. And all the, all, in thee, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Deuteronomy 30, it says, And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thy enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute you. So nations will be disciplined or rewarded for how they treat Israel. The Lord said that. In fact, I want to show you something. Turn to Joel. Go back left just a few pages to Joel, and we're going to look at Joel chapter 3, verse 2. This is stunning. The Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them here. Over what? Why are you going to judge them, God? On behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. God says, if you divide up the land of Israel, he's going to judge you. This week, I started researching on what has happened to America as we've honored or dishonored Israel. In 1948, our president was the first one to honor them. President Truman was the first to sign the credentials recognizing the state of Israel. And Presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan all honored Israel as a friend. And in the 1990s, George Bush and then Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush began to press Israel to give up their land to Palestine. And multiple times that happened. Well, William Koenig is a White House correspondent who's a believer and he began tracking what happened to America every time we pressed Israel to divide their land. Because the Lord says in Joel 3, if you do that, I'm going to judge you. Now, I'm just going to read you the facts. Some of you are not going to believe this, but I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Take it or leave it. This, this is documented in a book called Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel. Consistently, major catastrophes, problems have happened in America the very day or the day after we pressed Israel to divide up their land. October 30th, 1991, President Bush signed the infamous Oslo Accordant with Madrid Peace Conference and demanded that Israel award land to Palestinians. That's October 30th. October 31st, a massive storm hit the United States and it hit George H. Bush's house. And it was called the perfect storm. It was so huge. It went against the direction that most storms go. The waves were 30 feet high. The book, The Perfect Storm, and the movie, The Perfect Storm, were later on inspired by what happened. August the 23rd in 1992, President George H. Bush picked up the peace list and tried again to get Israel to divide up the land. The same day, Hurricane Andrew smashed Florida and caused over $30 billion in damage. 180,000 homes were taken out. Coincidence. That's just coincidence. January 16, 1994, President Clinton meet, met with Syria's president, and he tried to get them to work it out so that Israel would have to give up the Golan Heights. In less than 24 hours, California was hit by the 6.9 Richter scale earthquake. 
It was the second most destructive disaster to hit the United States. Coincidence. September 28, 1998, Clinton pushes another land deal against Israel. The same day, Hurricane, Hurricane George hits the Gulf course. Coincidence. November 30, 1998, President Clinton promised $400 million towards a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as the capital taking away land. Same day, the Dow Jones dropped 216 points and hundreds of billions of dollars of market capitalization were wiped out in America. Coincidence. December 12, 1998, President Clinton arrives in Palestine. He discusses their land for peace deal, asking Israel to give up her land. On that day, President Clinton was impeached by the United States House of Representatives. Voted four articles of impeachment that day. Coincidence. September 10, 2001, President George W. Bush completed his plan to work to create a Palestinian nation in Israel. Bandar recall, calls his office to inform them the agreement is finally finished. September 10, 2001. Coincidence. There's a book that's just come out called The Harbinger. I don't know if you've heard of it. It came out this year. Jewish rabbi Jonathan Kahn begins to lay out the specifics on how God judged Israel in detail. And he says, if you, if you look at it, it's chilling how in the same details God is judging our nation. That Israel is the most Jewish nation following the Old Testament covenant, and America is the most Christian nation that we were established built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves us but he's calling us to repentance. Ah, coincidence. Right now, all across our nation, something is happening. You've seen it in our pastor, and I want you to know I'm seeing it everywhere, and that is American Christian leaders are rising up with an incredible burden for our nation, and they say the judgment of God is about to come on our nation if we don't repent. I'm seeing it everywhere. Billy Graham this week released a, a, an email, a, a letter, and it's his final call for America to repent. He's 93. He says, my heart aches for America and its deceived people. He says, we are heading towards God's judgment as a nation. He says, our Lord is a God of mercy. He responds to repentance. In the past, he has forgiven us and brought a great awakening when we would pray and repent. He says, I believe it's coming again. We must repent. It's interesting that his letter comes as a growing number of political leaders and spiritual leaders are calling our nation to repent right now, stressing that we are in a downward spiral of economic decline, corruption, immorality, humanism, and attacks on religious liberty. The other thing that's striking about this warning is it comes at the same time when believers are sensing this same thing that's happening. So Billy Graham and his association are calling believers to pray and to repent right now. The American Family Association is calling believers to pray and repent for, pray for revival right now. Life Action Ministry and One Choir Initiative have just been launched. Why? To call America to pray and to repent. And specifically Christians 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. America for Jesus is organizing hundreds of thousands of people on September 28th and 29th of this year to meet in Independence Mall in Philadelphia, where our nation was launched, to pray for national revival. In Charlotte, North Carolina, on September the 2nd, 1,300 churches and pastors have been invited to come to the Verizon Center the day before the Democratic National Convention will happen in Charlotte. And they're saying the world's eyes are on us. We must repent as churches of our sin. The pastors must repent of not preaching the word in the pulpit. The people of God must repent of our sin. Because the world is blind. They're slaves to sin. They're spiritually blinded by the enemy. And the church has the truth of God. We have the word of God, but we're intoxicated in our entertainment, in our passivity. So what's happening at Sherwood? What's been happening in the last few months? Our pastor steps up here every Sunday with a broken heart. He says, Sherwood, we have more than other churches have. We hear the word every Sunday. Other churches don't. We've been blessed more than just about any church we can think of. We have an active prayer ministry. If there's not revival going on here, what does that mean for everyone else? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, if I, Stephen Kendrick, who am called by the name of Christ, will humble myself and repent of my sin, turn from my wicked ways, he will hear from heaven. So there's two things I want to challenge you and me to begin to do. And that is repent at every level. Repent for individual sins. Repent for sins you've committed in your family. Repent for the sins you've committed in this church. Repent for the sins that you've committed, and they, may, they just may be sins of omission. You haven't done anything about this city. Repent of the sins you've committed as an American citizen. And then intercede. Cry out to God on behalf of yourself and your family. Cry out to God on behalf of this church. Be like Abraham and say, Lord, please, please hold back your judgment. Because what, what is happening right now is everything is heading towards a, a, a pinnacle. Either there's some, God's judgment is going to hit our nation in a huge way soon, or a great spiritual awakening is happening. One of those two things is going to happen. When you look at history and you look at the Word of God, everything is heading towards something very harsh happening in our nation economically or somebody else attacking or with weather, whatever it may be, we're rapidly heading in that direction. Either God's harsh judgment is going to fall or he's giving us another day, another opportunity, another Sunday to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forget about what other people do Forget about we, we attack the homosexuals, but what about my sin? 
We should repent at every level as individuals in our families, our churches, our cities. I want to ask you as a church to forgive me for my negligence of the prayer ministry of this church. I'm over the prayer ministry of this church. And I've given it a half-hearted effort. And I need your forgiveness. I need you to forgive me because I know the gospel so well. And rarely do you see someone in that baptistry that I've won to Christ. I've been trained in CWT and faith and in Romans Road and sharing the tracks and everything else. I've shared that with you. The Lord this week convicted me. He said, Stephen, you preach the gospel from the pulpit, and that's great. But the people you're interacting with, are you sharing the gospel with them? And I've justified it in my mind. And I'm asking you to forgive me. I've asked the Lord to forgive me. I'm asking you. I don't want to be a hindrance of revival in this church. I don't want to be the reason God doesn't come. Would you be willing, if you've sinned against someone else in this church, go to them and ask them to forgive you. If someone has sinned against you, you forgive them. Let's, let's say no to secondary things. Let's ask God who loves us so deeply, who sent his son to die for us on the cross. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He who did not withhold his own son, will he not freely give us all things? He's entrusted us with the gospel. Would you make your seat or this altar a place where you get right with the Lord today? Could we do that together?